Today is Father's Day, which causes me naturally to reflect on my own relationship with my father. Uh, I'm extremely fortunate, uh, blessed by God, to be able to say without reservation that I love my father. I can remember countless times um, working on our cars, which mine was always broken as a teenager, um, just learning skills and life lessons and talking about our lives and knowing one another more. Uh, I remember him encouraging me when I was maybe 11 to teach a Bible study of my peers, uh, leading me on a, on a journey of, of loving the scriptures. Um, I remember him quitting his good job to join a church plant and then later to plant a church, uh, putting his family's financial security on the line for the sake of the kingdom uh, and teaching me what it really means to obey. And I remember him conducting my wedding. Uh, I love my dad's dad too, actually. Uh, he's in his 80s now. I remember him teaching me to love learning and reading. Um, he, he's still pick, picking up new things at, at 85. Um, I remember him pastoring a church for 40 years and exemplifying faithfulness. And even more than that, I still see him today exemplifying the love with which Christ loves his bride, the church, as he loves my grandmother. Um, as she is lost in the fog of dementia. I love my, my mom's dad too. Um, he became a Christian later in life and uh, exemplified a remarkable both wisdom with money but also generosity um, daily. And he just loved spending time with me. He would always take me on errands and invite me places. He never missed one of my baseball games. And for years, every year for my birthday, he would take me to Pennsylvania to watch the Little League World Series. And those were some of the happiest and most carefree days of my entire life. I mean, I could go on for hours about the fathers in my life, whom I love, but there is a very important fact that you should know about all three of these men. That is that Jesus says, I am supposed to love him more than any of them. Let me read to you a teaching of Jesus from Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So here is the main point for today. It's my main point because it is the main point of the teaching we just read from Jesus. The point is that it is costly to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's start at the beginning. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. How can this be? How am I supposed to love Jesus, whom I have never met, more than my dad? 
For some of you, this might be the easiest thing that Jesus says in this section. Uh, many of you have relationships with various family members that are almost completely negative, and, um, and I'm sorry for that. At the very least, all of us, myself included, have complex relationships with those that are close to us, uh, but Jesus says that we are to hate them. How can that be? So we, we here believe in reading the Bible literally, um, but that, that doesn't mean that we read every single sentence literally. Uh, there are idioms and figures of speech just like there are in English. Um, so understand that, that Jesus here is drawing a comparison. The key is not hating your family. The key is in comparison to Jesus, your, your priority for any other person it should be negligible. Jesus is calling you to love him that much. And a rhetorical or no, that is still a hard saying. So hard, in fact, that it seems maybe irrational. Like Jesus didn't really mean this one. Because, I mean, come on, our families, to many of us, they're, they're everything. Consider this, though. God created this world, this universe, and everything in it. He built all of our relationships in a certain way, with a certain design, and a certain priority. Our love for God, and, and we as Christians know that Jesus is God, our love for Jesus is to be primary and utmost. So Jesus here is not calling us to something irrational or preposterous. He's actually calling us to simply conform ourselves to the correct and natural order that things are already in. Uh, elsewhere, someone asks Jesus to sum up all of God's commandments, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Here, Jesus is demonstrating the correct order, God first, then everyone else. God with everything that you have, and then finally, after that, after you have loved God with all that you are, then your neighbor. Now, I, I hope that when you leave here today, you don't love your, your father and your mother and your family any less than you did when you come in. In fact, I hope that by loving Jesus so much more, his reorienting of your life actually improves your relationships in, in, in every arena. But here is the hard reality that you, you have to acknowledge. This is what Jesus is teaching. Following him comes at a cost. When Jesus reorients your relationships, when he changes your life to suit the way that he designed it, it will create conflict. There will be people that do not like it. You will hurt people's feelings. You will offend people. People will be angry. Because putting Jesus that far out front, where he belongs, it offends people. It threatens other forms of relationships and identity that we rely on naturally as humans. Putting Jesus out in front where he belongs threatens any kind of, of tribalism or racism or ethnocentrism. It threatens gender superiority. It threatens family lines and feuds. It threatens political affiliations. It threatens anything that you say that you are or any relationship in your life that you consider to be important is put under pressure by Jesus demanding that he come far first. Your identity as a Christ follower here in this room with your brothers and sisters, this is the one and singular first of your identities. This is who you are if you truly want to follow Jesus following Jesus is costly. 
Jesus continues, he who does not hate even his own life cannot be my disciple. Again, how can this be? Is Jesus saying that, that a follower of Christ should, should be self-loathing or even suicidal? Again, rhetorically, we recognize that Jesus is not commanding you to hate yourself, but rather, in contrast, to be prepared to let go of anything that you care about. He actually goes on to say immediately after that you must bear your cross to follow him. There are two things that you should know about the cross here when Jesus says it. First, Jesus is not talking about the cross. He's not talking about the Christian symbol of Christianity, which we all love. At this point, to the audience he's speaking to, he has not yet told them that he is going to the cross. So to them, the cross is neither sentimental nor holy and had no meaning other than the most vile form of execution that has ever been devised and maybe was not even appropriate to speak about in polite company. Take up your lynching rope and follow me. Secondly, in the law of the day, the Roman law, once someone had been sentenced to execution by the cross, they literally would bear their cross to the site of their execution from the trial. And during that time, they were considered legally as one already dead. Technically speaking, this means that they had no rights. There are stories of convicted criminals that were grateful to arrive at the site of their execution because of the way they were treated on the way there to give you any idea of what it's like to be a man with no rights. So what does Jesus mean when he says to hate yourself and bear your cross? How about giving up your rights? Any and all of them. When I say that, there are certain things that probably come to mind. Um, we're familiar with, with the language of rights in certain arenas, uh, perhaps the right to free speech, the right to bear arms, um, the right to a trial, the right to fair punishment. These are some of our civic rights. But consider that Jesus commands us, Matthew 5, 39, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Are you prepared to give up your right to a fair trial for Jesus? What about your property rights, your right to own things, your right to have the safety and security of a home? and belongings. Matthew eight nineteen, a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing in the following of Jesus to give up your right to have a safe place to live? What about the right to decide how to spend your money? Matthew 5.42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It sounds to me like Jesus has plans for what your money is supposed to be doing. Are you ready to give up yours? What about more innate private rights, human rights, you might even say in today's language? Um, perhaps your right to be loved and respected. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus doesn't even tell you that you're going to have enemies. That's assumed. And he, in fact, commands you to love him. Uh, a pastor that I um, enjoy listening to uh, likes the turn of phrase, uh, if you like someone, you may love them. Um, if you hate someone, you have to. What about your right to act a certain way? 
or to believe certain things? What about your right to have a certain sense of self or identity or even your right to feel certain ways? Surely no one can tell me that I don't have the right to feel the way I feel. And yet, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus is the way, all other ways are wrong. If Jesus is the truth, all other truths are lies. And if Jesus is the life, then all other lifestyles are death. So are you prepared to give up your rights to follow Jesus? What about that one you really don't want to? That is the one that Jesus is asking for when he says, bear your cross and follow me. Following Jesus is costly. Jesus often has a way of making a really good but difficult point and then following it up with a story that grounds it and helps it make sense to us. He does that here. Look at the examples he uses to make his point clear. He intentionally chose two examples that demonstrate a large cost. Um, he could have said, you know, observe a man who builds a barn or a house, but instead he chooses a tower, a mighty stone tower, uh, maybe a defensive work or a watchtower. It's expensive. Uh, and even more so, consider the army. This is not an army of 100 or even 1,000 men, but 10,000. And in the language of the day, 10,000 might be like me saying a zillion. It, a lot. Too many. And, and that's not just money even, that's lives. The cost that this, this king in Jesus' story is considering is an immense cost of men's lives. Jesus is saying, what he is asking for is expensive. Elsewhere, he tells a very simple but poignant story of a man who seeks out valuable pearls. The man finds a pearl that is so costly, he must sell every single thing he owns to buy it. And he does. And then Jesus sums that up one last time by saying, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So when you take it all together, Jesus is in fact saying that your entire life, every nook and cranny needs to be shuffled around and reoriented to follow him. There's no one issue at stake. There's not a particular sin that Jesus really hates, but that one's okay. There's no certain command that you have to follow and then others that you ought to follow. And besides, regardless of, of how closely you perceive your life to be to following Jesus, if even for one second you have failed to acknowledge God as the highest king worthy of all glory and honor and praise in the universe, you're a sinner. Because that is truly what God deserves. And by failing to give him that, you are sinning. If you want your father or your mother or your rights or your comfort or your safety or your money or everything that you care about more than Jesus, you're not worthy to follow him. Jesus wants you to take all of that, your whole life, add it up, take the bottom line and decide that he is worth it. So what do we call that? There's a word, Jesus uses it here to describe the means by which our lives are completely reshaped by Jesus to follow him. 
to follow Jesus, your life will and must constantly change, conforming more to the example and teaching of Jesus. And we call that being his disciple, discipleship. And hear me carefully now. This is the point that Jesus is making. This is the main point. Discipleship is always costly. If what you call discipleship, what you call following Jesus is not costly, if the things you're willing to give up aren't that bad, or if you're willing to be a disciple over here in this part of your life, but not over here in this special part, if you're not ready to renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. It's the words of Jesus himself. And if you're not a disciple, and you're not following Jesus, you are not a Christian. It's as simple as that. Let me challenge you now with some specific considerations to think about. Those of you who who claim to follow Jesus, evaluate the cost of your discipleship. Jesus makes himself very clear. He doesn't mince words. Being a disciple is costly. Have you counted the cost? I don't know your life and these things I'm about to suggest certainly don't apply to everyone all the time. They're merely suggestions, but they're all based in scripture and the commands of Jesus and they're not off the table for anyone. There's no excuse that you have to throw out any of these considerations or commands. Jesus is asking for everything. So to you among us who claim the name of Jesus, who say, I am a disciple, consider. Have you considered literally writing discipleship into your calendar to spend 10 or 20 or 30 hours a week meeting over scriptures for evangelism, teaching, and discipleship? Have you considered that you're going to have to meet people unlike you to do that and have them into your home? Have you considered that you're going to have to give up hobbies and entertainment, kids' sports, vacation days even to make that happen? Have you considered adopting or fostering hard-to-place children and raising them in the ways of the Lord? Have you considered using your retirement years for that, your financial stability and your experience to help those who need it most? Have you considered spending more money than makes sense to go out into the nations and spread the gospel of Jesus? Have you considered taking your kids along with you? If you want your kids to grow up as disciples, now is your chance to set an example. They're watching. Have you considered choosing a career or avoiding certain ones that interfere with discipleship? Have you thought about foregoing certain types of physical and financial success for Jesus? Have you thought about committing to a local church body and staying there, even if it means giving up career progress or income? Have you considered thanking God for his providence by putting you in the stage of life that you're in, even if you can't wait for it to end? Have you considered abandoning your desires for Jesus' sake, even though the world tells you to find yourself? And have you considered literally going into the mission field to die, to a place where you know you are to be hated, persecuted, and even killed for the sake of following Jesus? Does your life look like someone who loves Jesus more than anything? Is your discipleship costly? the life or death question. And to those among us today who do not follow Jesus, instead of challenging you with those things, I actually have an offer. 
after hearing all this, you're undoubtedly asking yourself, and if you are a follower of Christ, I hope you are too if you've been paying attention, why would I want to follow Jesus if it is so costly? Kill my natural desires, love my enemies, especially the ones that really hate me, to go into dangerous places, to give away my time and my money and my security or even my life. What could possibly cost that much? Why would I want to follow Jesus? I have for you three reasons. One, you want to follow Jesus in life. Two, you want to follow Jesus in death. Three, you want to follow Jesus after death. First, follow Jesus in life. We've covered this already. Jesus is calling you to respond to him, to leave the important things in your life and dedicate yourself to his mission. He commands you to be prepared to forsake family, possessions, comfort, desires, and even your life to follow after him. But he's not calling you to make these sacrifices to prove something to him or to yourself or to make a point. In fact, he promises in Luke 9, 23 and 24, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is saying that by following him, by becoming his disciple, that's actually the means by which to save our lives. So how can that be? What does that mean? Read the verses right before Luke 9.22. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, we follow Jesus in life by obeying his commands, but then we follow him to his death on the cross. Jesus had not revealed that he was going to the cross yet at that point, but it foreshadows the reality of the work he did there. Hang your noose around your neck, take your life in your hands, let it go and follow Jesus. So we follow Jesus into his death because his death is what has paid the price for our sins. Those sins of failing to obey Jesus, of failing to prioritize him as the, the highest and the utmost, those sins are deserving of death. And yet, hear this promise in Galatians 2.20 to all of those who follow Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are a follower of Jesus, your sin and the punishment for it was put to death when Jesus died on the cross. The cost of following Jesus has been paid. And up to this point, this is actually as remarkable as it is comprehensible to us. We understand what it means to follow someone. You do what they do. You say what they say. You want to be like them. We understand what it means to follow someone even to death. Some of the greatest historical narratives and, and fictional works that we love are about you know, men following other men into battle to death. It's the highest form of following. We get that. It's incredible, but it, it makes sense but we are in fact invited to somewhere outside of our human experience. We are invited to follow Jesus further. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, says this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality.
because Jesus died on the cross and he calls us to follow him there, so also our old selves have died. But because after Jesus died, he came back to life, he invites us now to follow him back to life and life imperishable forever. We follow Jesus in his life. We follow him in his death. We follow him again into eternal life. But even yet, there is more. Listen to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Not only do we follow Jesus in life, in death, in resurrection, but we follow him into glory. Can you even imagine that? Not only does Jesus, the son of God, take the punishment that we deserve, not only does he raise us back to life, he invites us to join the household of God. God, who created everything, the king of everywhere, wants you to be his child. Jesus is inviting you to follow him into his sonship with God. So I hope you understand that when Jesus calls you to follow him and warns you of the cost, he's not doing it to make a point other than that it is worth it. It's for you that he calls you to follow him. It's for your sake. Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost. That's his purpose for being here. He calls you to follow him in this intense discipleship for you. It's, it's a, a great mystery of Christianity, the sense that following Jesus, you know, the, the salvation that he offers to you is free to you. Jesus has already paid for it. And yet, as we see in this text today, it also costs everything you have. And yet, it would be worth a hundred times that. What a miracle that could only have been devised by a good, good God. Let me leave you today with a brief warning and a brief encouragement. Um, if you turn back to the original text in Luke 14, you will notice, if you've read a Bible at all, that there are um, like little numbers and headings that divide up different parts of the text. Um, the books of the Bible were the way they were originally written. All the other stuff was added later to make it easy for us to find things. It's very helpful. Sometimes it's misleading. It's always important to recognize how the original audience of any particular piece of scripture would have heard this and the way that the audience would have heard this teaching of Jesus is as part of a longer discourse. Um, and so we'll actually just continue straight into the next section without a break, recognizing that this comes right after what Jesus just told us about counting the cost. So he says in Luke 14, starting in 34, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So consider this now in light of the immediately preceding teaching. If salt loses its saltiness, it is thrown out. So this is clearly a warning to anyone listening to recognize that the cost of discipleship is not a temporary thing. Following Jesus isn't something you start and then stop. 
It doesn't start costly and then get easier, nor do you reach the end and then you're finished. You can't ever pay it off. Following Jesus will not ever result in enough cost paid. It doesn't end. So if you're not a disciple and you're thinking about it, or if you are a disciple and you're thinking about it, count the cost, recognizing that Jesus is calling you to follow him to the end and even beyond. But now an encouragement as we'll continue right into the next chapter which is still part of the same discourse. I hope you're sitting there thinking, I could never do this. I could never follow Jesus like he commands. I could never count enough cost. And if you don't think that, I, th- I think you've missed the point of what Jesus is teaching. No one could possibly do that. And frankly, hearing the words come out of my mo- own mouth is, is dejecting in a way because I know that I don't add up. I don't love Jesus more than every single person in my life and all my possessions and my hopes and dreams and desires. And yet somehow, on the other hand, there's also this little voice inside of me that kind of, you know, tries to suggest, well, actually, you're doing pretty good, right? I mean, you go to church every Sunday. Like, look, I'm up here preaching. That's good. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus is glad he hired me. I'm probably worth it. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably think that too. Those are both very common human ways to think and feel. So listen to this now as we continue right on with the words of Jesus. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, sheep are are very dumb. Um, We have some friends in the church that own sheep. I was talking to Mike the other day about how dumb sheep are. you know, he was explaining to me sometimes sheep will like eat so much grass that they kill themselves. Or if they see something tasty at the bottom of a cliff, they'll you know, just go over the edge. And then another one will follow because you know, if he went, there must have been something good, right? Sheep aggressively attempt to injure themselves and get lost and cause harm. They're dumb. Um, but I think I can understand why Jesus calls us his sheep, right? You ever feel that way? You ever have a day where you're like, man, I am... I am really, if my goal was to make my life miserable, I'm killing it. I've been there. Um, you know, especially compared to the, the standard that Jesus lays out for us, I, I really feel like a sheep. Um, so that's not the encouragement, fortunately, uh, but in a way it is. Here's the thing, you can't follow Jesus. You can't do it. You're a sheep. You, you, don't, you don't take care of yourself. You're not smart. You don't follow Jesus like you should. It doesn't work. You can't do it. You're, you're petty. You're prideful. You're selfish. You're sinful. You're rebellious. You, you don't put Jesus where he belongs. All of that. You're in fact not floundering or drowning. You're not dying. You're dead. But that is in fact the most beautiful part of God's will is that Jesus, he comes to you. After all, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. 
He didn't, he didn't invite you to see him. He sent his son to you. Jesus seeks and saves you. He comes to you when you're lost. He makes it possible for you to be a disciple, to die to yourself and to live a life of righteousness following after him. He does the work. And so if you are lost like a sheep, and we all are until Christ comes and claims us, Jesus is calling you. He is wandering the wilderness of your soul, the highs and lows, the ecstasy and depression, the successes and failures, your worthlessness, your self-reliance. He's climbing all of those mountains, calling you. He's waiting for you to answer his call so that he and all of heaven can rejoice over you. Jesus has sought you. He wants you to come to the Father, adopted into his family as a co-heir with Christ. Jesus says, follow me, and I will lead you home. So I want to conclude by summing up everything I've said. I want to make sure to get it just right. So I'm going to read you uh, one more small passage of scripture because it says it better than I ever could and it's, it's more powerful and true than anything I could ever come up with to say. Um, I'm going to read it twice and then pray very briefly. Um, so Christian, you can go ahead and get ready. This is from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me read it again. Listen. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, we never could have imagined such a beautiful portrait of love. We, we can't imagine the cost to you. We misjudge and underemphasize the cost to us of following Jesus. But you and your glory and your wisdom and your goodness have fit it all together in a way that magnifies you and saves us. Today on Father's Day, you are my father. How could anyone ever praise you enough in gratitude for you, the king, to adopt me to be your son. My life is yours, and I'll follow you to the end of my days. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, amen.